0: through larger books and portions of the Bible. I think that's an important commitment, uh, not to just be picking passages every week, but to be working through God's Word together. But I just wanted to mention that. Uh, that being said, this morning we're going to look at Genesis 3, which gives us the backstory on sin and its consequences, uh, but also the surprising grace of God that's given to us in the very first pages of Scripture. I'll ask you to remain seated for this reading. Old Testament readings can tend to get a little bit long. Uh, But look with me at Genesis chapter 3. This is God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every which way to guard the way to the tree of life. A sentence of reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Uh, Father, as our Savior prayed for us, uh, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Show us Christ and his grace in this dark moment on the pages of your word, Father, in the pages of human history. By the power of that grace, Lord, make us those who know you and follow you and trust you with our whole hearts. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. When I was 16, uh, I went on a backpacking trip with my dad in British Columbia, And I was a pretty scrawny 16-year-old, so that was quite an adventure. Uh, If you're ever going on a trip like this, I would make a recommendation. If you have to pack in all of your food, pick things to put in your backpack that will be eaten quickly, and your backpack will get a little bit lighter. Uh, I made the mistake of looking at the food that was sitting out, and I decided there's ketchup, mustard, salt, pepper. I'll be condiments guy, and you don't want to be condiments guy when you're hiking. That's just a tip. But it was it was really an incredible adventure. Beautiful country that we were hiking through. I remember at the end of a, a grueling hike on the first day, we came up over this really steep ridge that was called Heart Attack Ridge for all the right reasons. Uh, we had hiked through the wilderness. Uh, it was beautiful, dense forest. Uh, but we got over Heart Attack Ridge, huffing and puffing. And then when we came to the top, we just kind of stood there, looking out in amazement at the view. Uh, Before us, there was this lush valley. Uh, They actually call it a bowl, And you could see in this bowl this beautiful alpine meadow, edged with patches of snow, uh, surrounded by majestic peaks, little rivers and streams running through this beautiful sight. It was just simply breathtaking. And that's the sense we get when we get to the end of Genesis 1 and 2. When we get to the end of Genesis 1 and 2, God's work of creation is done. Uh, He's created his masterpiece, flinging stars into existence, setting the streams flowing, uh, raising the mountain peaks, coming up with elephants and ants and aardvarks. And he steps back and he says, "Wow, this is very good." Now imagine a raging wildfire comes through and just tears through this beautiful scene that you're looking at, just scorches everything to the ground, ashes. And soot and black dirt. That's the sense we get when we open Genesis chapter 3, and we turn the page from God's work of creation uh, to the fall and the beginning of sin in the world. So this morning, I want to look at Genesis 3 together, at this terrible uh, turn of events in the early pages of human history, because it's a crucial part of your story. Every bit of suffering and pain and sorrow and sin that you go through in your life. It's a result of what we read in Genesis 3. Uh, Before Genesis 3, children didn't go hungry. Marriages didn't end in divorce. Cousins didn't get cancer. But the fall of mankind changed all of that. But we also find in Genesis 3 is that this desperate fall of mankind sets the stage for us to see the surprising grace of God. I don't think we can look at everything in Genesis 3 this morning, but we can find Jesus and his grace, and I think it will be good to do that. Uh, It's worth sifting through the mess of sin and suffering in a chapter like Genesis 3, because we see the gospel shining so brightly. It's like a diamond glistening in a jeweler's display on black velvet. You see the darkness, but then you see the beauty of the gospel here. So I want to walk through this with you and look at uh, really one big idea, which is your sin and suffering can only be overcome by the grace of God, by the surprising grace of God. And we'll look at three things in this uh, chapter, uh, walking through it in uh, kind of three steps. We'll look at the fall, then the fallout, and the final word. The fall, the fallout, and the final word. So let's get started first with The fall. We're going to spend the most time here. I know some of us are watching the clock because today is daylight savings and uh, maybe we're tired. Uh, but we'll spend the most time looking at the fall. Look with me again at Genesis 3.1. We read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So here the antagonist enters the script. The enemy, the adversary, uh, the cunning angel of light, the great dragon, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Some of the descriptions of the enemy in God's word. And the enemy finds an angle to attack God's plan. He does so by tempting those who were created to bear God's image, uh, to bear witness to his glory. Uh, he tempts them to commit sin against their God. He goes after the image bearers because he hates the one whose image they bear. What's his angle? How does the serpent uh, strike? Uh, Well, the enemy attacks that which he most hates. He attacks God's truth. In John 8.44, Jesus said that the enemy does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he is true to his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. He is a shrewd deceiver who attacks God's truth. And he does so here in the garden by casting suspicion on God's word. Did God actually say you can eat or you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did he actually say? Uh, Kidner points out that the serpent's tone here, did God actually say, uh, smuggles in the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. Spoiler alert, plug ears if you don't want to hear it. God's word is not actually subject to your judgment. But Eve missed the memo. Eve puts God's word about his good provision under the microscope of her own judgment, and she says, "We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden." You see what's going on here? God has been so abundantly generous. You can eat of all the trees, God said. Eat them all. Eat the apples and apricots and melons and mulberries and uh, pomegranates, date palms, plums. There is one tree that you cannot eat. Do not eat of this tree. Nothing is off limits except for this tree. But you would know it by what Eve says. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. The, The seed of suspicion is planted in Eve. If there's any doubt that she's becoming suspicious of God's intentions, she says also, by way of addition, God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She abbreviates God's provision and she exaggerates God's prohibition. Friends, we've done this, haven't we? We've abbreviated God's yes and exaggerated God's no. As if his no is very big. And his yes is very small. But Christian, what don't you have in Christ? John 4.14 Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Matthew 11.28 Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest John 8.36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That sounds like a pretty generous yes to me. That sounds like a pretty generous Savior. So don't exaggerate God's no when He has given you everything in Jesus. All of His promises are yes and amen in Him. Paul tells the believers at Corinth, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The devil is still tempting us in this way. Sincere and pure devotion to a good Savior, to a generous Savior, to a Savior who has your good at heart. So beware of the devil's lies. Don't believe it for a minute when he says that God is not generous and does not have your good at heart. Well, Satan attacks God's truth, and another thing he does, he offers an attractive alternative. At least it seems attractive on the surface. It's really dangerous. It's it's a horrible idea. There are sharp rocks at the bottom, but it's an attractive alternative. This might be the best rig in Satan's tackle box. Uh, Thomas Brooks describes it so well when he talks about this bait that Satan uses, this device or scheme of Satan. Brooks says, "...to present the bait and hide the hook." By this device he took our first parents. Your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods. Here is the bait, the sweet, the pleasure, the profit. Oh, but he hides the hook. The shame, the wrath, and the loss that would certainly follow. Satan presented the bait so well. Luring Eve in by making her suspicious of God's intentions. Then he presented this attractive alternative But he tucked that sharp hook right up inside the bait. He dangles it in front of her. Verse 5, the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, Satan twists the meaning of the tree to serve his own ends. They're going to know good and evil. And it's going to ruin them. Adam and Eve will know good and evil by committing evil and abandoning good, trampling on God's good command by disobeying it and ripping apart that happy, blessed relationship that they enjoyed with their creator. Their eyes will be open and they will know good and evil and they will wish they didn't. Committing evil, disobeying God, eating the fruit of the tree. Friends, that may sound like a story for another time, but we are tempted in this very same way every single day. Your eye wanders and you only see the immediate thrill and not the fiery wreck that's coming for your marriage and your family. You have a drink and then you say just one more drink and then another and then another. And it seems like a good idea at the time, but you don't see the web of destruction that you're walking into for your body and your relationships and your finances and your soul. Just one more minute. Just one more hour, just one more day at work, climbing the ladder on a day or a week that should have been the Lord's or your family's or your neighbor's. It seems like success in the moment, but anytime you pursue that success outside of God's will and rob that time from the Lord and your family and your neighbor, you're only walking towards destruction. Beware of the hook. Satan presents the bait but he hides the hook. And our first parents took the bait. Genesis 3, 6, we see, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. In the words of the English poet, John Milton, greedily she engorged without restraint and knew not eating death. When God created Adam, He created him to enjoy perfect fellowship and life with him. And He entered into a covenant with Adam. He entered into a covenant with Adam and as that relationship was established, Adam represents all of us. All of his descendants, all of humanity represented in that relationship, in that covenant. But when Adam fails and disobeys, uh, that covenant is broken. We read those faithful words, and he ate. There was still a chance. They didn't have to listen to the enemy. Adam did not have to partake in this sin, but he took and he ate. Suspicious of God's intentions, deciding to try Satan's alternative way instead of God's good way, uh, keeping faithful covenant with him. Adam eats. Therefore, Roman Romans 5.12 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. That, friends, is the fall. So what happens next? Let's look at the fallout. Maybe you notice the serpent just kind of slips from the scene in the story. He's done his worst, worst, and he slithers into the background. Uh, Adam and Eve's eyes are open. They know what they've done, and they're ashamed by what they've done. They feel the sting of Satan's hook. They know that bitter aftertaste of guilt that we all know far too well. And you can just imagine the serpent hissing in satisfaction. So, summing up just a little bit, we see Adam and Eve, they become despairingly self conscious. Uh, they become self protective, dividing from one another. They become self excusing, distancing themselves from their sin. But God calls them out of hiding. They never really could hide from God anyway, and he calls them out of hiding, and he hands down the sentence for rebelling against his law. It's a dark day here at the beginning of history. I want to see a couple of things here, though, because there are a couple of things that are encouraging, even in the sentence that God delivered to Adam and Eve and the serpent. First, we see that God's rule is unrivaled. Someone rightly said there are many rebels in God's kingdom, but there are no rivals to his kingdom. This is encouraging news. There may be rebels, but there are no rivals. It's reassuring, as heavy as it is to see this play out in Genesis 3. There may be those who covet God's rule, but there is no one who can conquer it. Competition with God is silly. It's delusional. Here's what God says about proud people who think they can stand against His rule and His reign. Isaiah 22, 17-19 Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, Oh, you strong man, he will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land and there you shall die. If you oppose the king who has created all things, the king who is sovereign over all things, he he can toss the proud man like a ball into a wide land. There is no opposing God and coming out on top. There are no rivals to his kingdom. So be encouraged that God's rule is unrivaled. Be encouraged that God's rule is unrivaled. And another thing, be encouraged that God's word is unwaveringly true. God means what he says 100% of the time. Genesis 2.17, And the day that you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. Genesis 3.19, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God's word is unwaveringly true. God meant what he said. The curse was declared, and from that point forward, death became the resounding, repetitive note of the human story. Genesis 5 says that Adam began to have children after his likeness. It says that he had children after his own likeness. In other words, children who also uh, are under this curse, such as he. And we read thus All the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And like a drumbeat in Genesis 5, over and over we hear, and he died and he died, and he died. They all died. You say, thanks for the downer, Dan, Uh, as if this wasn't depressing enough. I get it. This This is not enjoyable to look at. This may not seem very encouraging. How could it seem encouraging? Maybe you even think that God was a little harsh to really do what He said and hand down the curse to Adam and Eve for disobeying. Where's the grace in that? Where's the love of a father in that? But here's the thing. If God's word wavers or is untrue at any point, then he becomes untrustworthy at every point. If God does not mean what he says in judgment, how will you know that he means what he says in grace and mercy and the gospel? Might the God who is trustworthy in judgment also be trustworthy in grace? The grace that he gives to you freely in Christ? His faithfulness and judgment lays the foundation for the rock-solid hope that you experience having founded your faith on Jesus Christ. A merciless God whose word is unwaveringly true would be terrifying, but we don't serve a merciless God. A compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That kind of God who always means what He says, that is the best news we could possibly hear. Not only was the curse declared, just as God said it would be, uh, but the, God put an even finer point on it when he completely shuts off and bars the way to the tree of life. Genesis three twenty-two to 24 Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every which way to guard the way to the tree of life. Pay close attention to what's happening here. This is important. Mankind was banished from God's presence and the promise of life in the garden and relationship with Him. And the question that the rest of the Bible answers is this how do we get back to God? What's the way back to what was lost? How do we get back to the life we were created for? How do we get back to him? It's true, of course, that the way that was barred to Adam and Eve was the actual path leading back to the garden, to the tree of life. But ultimately, it wasn't merely the road into Eden. It was the way to life by good works, the way to life by faithful obedience To the covenant king. Adam had that chance, and that chance is over. There is no more attaining life by obeying God. That covenant is broken and it's done. So that road leads nowhere. That's a dead end. So the question remains how do we get back to God? Well, we've seen the fallout now after the fall. I want us to look at the good news. We've seen uh, the fall. We've seen how horribly messed up that made everything. But now let's look at the final word, the final word of grace. I want to share something with you I read some time ago. Uh, The words of a widow reflecting on her husband's death uh, to cancer. Her words words point us to the problem uh, that's come about through the curse, through everything we have just seen, and the solution that's only found in Jesus. And here's what she had to say. In that moment... When my husband died, I realized that the hardness of Michael's death was a reminder that it is not supposed to be this way. Ever read the first three chapters of Genesis? Man was created for life, not death. But we live in a fallen world, and the cherubim still garb the tree of life with white hot swords. Our only hope is a Redeemer who has conquered death itself and has risen as he said. Jesus in John 17, uh, speaking with our Father in Heaven. He says, This is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. Jesus says, I did it. It is finished. It's done. I have accomplished the work You gave Me to do. Where Adam failed, I have not. Christ perfectly accomplished His work. What's this work Jesus was given to do? Well, we find the great work of Christ foretold here in Genesis 3. Look with me in your Bibles at Genesis 3.15. Satan won't get the final word. Sin won't get the final word. The Savior gets the final word. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the final word about sin and suffering and the answer to that question the rest of the Bible answers. How do we get back to God? God's surprising grace is the final word of defeat to the cursed serpent. And I'm convinced this grace was the last thing the devil expected when he approached Adam and Eve with his schemes. It's the dark side of the moon to the devil. A compassionate and gracious God? What is that? What is this grace and mercy? You see that uh, he he continues this battle. think I'm being handed a microphone. Thank you. He continues this battle, but he cannot win and he will not win. God preserves the promised line of the Savior from Eden to Bethlehem. God upholds the son from Bethlehem to Calvary. And at Calvary, the son of the woman crushes the devil's head. He smashes it flat in victory. The final word of victory, it is finished. The serpent is still waging his war against God's people today, tempting them, attacking the church, trying to win, but he cannot because God will have the final word. The victory's been won, and he won't prevent any of God's chosen children from receiving the life that they're promised. Christ has conquered. He has bruised the serpent's head. He has conquered the curse and triumphed at the cross. That's the final word, friends. God's surprising grace is the final word of defeat. It's the final word against Satan, death, and hell. Adam and Eve stood shaking in fear of God's wrath. They thought, fig leaves might do the trick. Let's try to cover up and do what we can to cover ourselves. And God says, no, I'm going to provide what you lack, and I'm going to give what you need. I will clothe you with my grace, and I will declare the victory before the battle even gets started, right here in Genesis 3.15. Jesus said, John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no flaming sword keeping you from life with the Father anymore if you are in Christ. The price of your sins has been put on Jesus' head. He walked up to the flaming sword, and he took the blow in your place. He lived the perfect, obedient life that you cannot live, and then he walked through that judgment so that you could be brought back to God. There is no more sword. There is no more reason to fear approaching God and his throne because of the grace that's given to you in Jesus. Jonathan Edwards said, and I'm just going to close with this, modernizing his language a little bit, but it's so good. He said, Christ took up the task of leading us to the tree of life, and he went before us. Christ was put to death by that flaming sword. And that sword, having put to death the Son of God, appearing in our name, a person of infinite worthiness, that sword did its job, and it's done. And Christ, rising from the dead, being a divine person himself, went before us, leading the way. And now the sword is removed, having carried out its execution, having nothing more to do there, having put Christ to death. You see what that means? There is no sword. That is the final word of grace for those who are in Christ. The conclusion is, the way is open and clear to eternal life for those who are in Christ. That's how Edwards closes that statement. The fall was a disaster, and the fallout was dark, but Jesus gets the final word. Your sin and your suffering can only be overcome by the surprising, matchless, unexpected good news of grace in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the final word of the gospel. Help us to recognize our enemies' attacks, to resist them, and to always lean on the promised one who has crushed the serpent's head forever. Father, we pray that we would never fear the sword of judgment, knowing that we have received in Christ your gift of grace. We ask these things because of that grace in the name of Jesus. Amen.